So while you're turning with one finger to Genesis 40 and the other finger to Acts 16, I add my word of greeting to those you already heard. In the wonderful name of God's only Son, Earth's only Savior, the only name given under heaven whereby men might be saved, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm so happy to worship him with you on this day, in this place, in Memphis, 24 February, 2019. Who knows how much longer we'll have to worship him here instead of there. So let's make the best of it. I bring you greetings from the International Christian Fellowship of Moscow, which meets at 2.15 a.m. on the Lord's Day, Memphis time. That's where we worship in the morning. I bring you greetings from Moskovskia Biblieskia Serkov, the Moscow Bible Church, which is a Russian church, which I went back there to be on the staff of. About a year ago, I stopped being on the staff, but I didn't stop going to church there. That's where we go to church in the afternoon. They meet at 6 a.m. Moscow time. It's important to Russians that I greet you for them, so I just fulfill that duty. Now, we're going to attempt the impossible. Uh, it usually takes me way too long, longer than I'm supposed to take, to get through two or three verses in one text, and what we're going to attempt is we're going to straddle two testaments, and we're going to try to build a missions arc, A-R-C, from the first book of the Bible to the fifth book of the New Testament. So we're going to cover uh, about 2,000 years and about 43 biblical books, and those of you who know me are thinking, well, lots of luck. But I think, I think there is a missions arc here. And before we get started, I want to say this. Almost always, we have a little time of sharing the gospel at the end. We, want, we know that in a congregation this size, it is mathematically inevitable that there are unbelievers in the room. We welcome you. We love you. We want you to come back. We don't want to insult you. We don't want to offend you. Usually, we share the gospel at the end. I'm going to do it at the beginning. Because if you don't believe the gospel, you're not going to understand what I say. You're not going to appreciate what I say. You're not going to like what I say. I want you to understand it. I want you to, to appreciate it. I want you to receive the truth of it. And I want you to rejoice in it. Now, the gospel has a certain explanatory power. That is, it shows us who we really are. And the gospel has a certain transformative power. That is, the gospel can make us somebody that we're not and somebody we never could be without the power of God, which comes through the gospel, specifically in that deposit of transformative power in a man, the man Christ Jesus, whom we love because he is our Savior and whom we serve because he is our King. Now, in the words of the great Timothy Keller, the gospel presents us with an intolerable offense. That offense is as follows. We have no spiritual merit to commend ourselves to God. We don't have a minimum of righteousness that would make God accept us. We have to get that merit. We have to get that righteousness somewhere else. That may be offensive, but it's true. But the gospel combines an intolerable offense with an unbelievable compliment. The, the, the offense is that we are in fact so unworthy 
that the only way God can endure our presence in his heaven for 10 seconds is the sacrifice of an infinitely loved, infinite worthy person. That's offensive to the point of insult to our flesh. The Holy Spirit can make us, make it palatable. The Holy Spirit can make us cling to that like a life raft in a sea of, of, of drowning and trouble. And that's what many people who worship here regularly have prayed that the Holy Spirit would do with you in this room. Now, here's the compliment. That infinite price was paid. It was paid. That's how much the sinner is loved, that the, that the price that was, was paid, the payment was made. And so we plead with you. Admit that you're a sinner, that you cannot save yourself. Listen, if you compare yourself to me, if God were comparing you to me, you'd have no problem. You'd get to heaven so easily, no problem at all. But you know what? He doesn't compare us, you to me. He compares both of us with himself. You know what that means? It means we're in trouble. It means there is an unattainable standard of righteousness that we can never reach up to on our tiptoes or our highest jump. Jesus takes us to the standard through his righteousness. He pours out his blood to make us clean. He pours out his righteousness to make us whole and acceptable and to give us a new status so that when God looks at his son on the cross, he sees our sin and he punishes it with a fullness of wrath so that he can look at those who accept that as a payment for salvation and take those repentant, believing sinners to heaven and reward us with an eternity of love, an eternity of grace due to Jesus, his only son. That's the gospel. Won't you believe it? Won't you believe it? Missions is making a gospel plea in another place, far away. Evangelism is making a gospel plea close up in the place where we live. How hypocritical it would be for us to pretend to care about missions far away when we don't care about the lost people all around us nearby. So we make the plea. Now, the story of missions is the story of redemption. Normally, I I think I will do it. I sort of say I'm not going to read the text, but I, I, will, I will read the text. The story of missions is the story of redemption. Redemption means to be set free. If you study New Testament Greek, you're going to get a little uh, verb list of the regular verbs, the paradigms, the normal paradigm that's chosen is the Greek verb luo. It means to untie. It means to loose. It means to set free. The theological adaptation of that practical word to loose is to redeem, to redeem. There are other words. There's more formal words. Ex agarazzo, to buy out the marketplace of sin. The story of missions is the story of redemption. And we're going to tell the story of redemption. We're going to try to tell it really fast. The story of Joseph is the story of redemption. The story of Joseph is the story of a redeemer. A redeemer hated. A redeemer rejected. A redeemer falsely accused and punished, though he was innocent. 
but a redeemer who with all that against him redeemed anyway. Now, I have no hesitation in saying without apology or qualification, the story of Joseph is the greatest story in the history of the world. You say, well, you mean in the Bible. No, no, no. No, I mean in the history of the world. You say, well, you mean spiritual story. No, I mean all stories. You're talking about theology. No, I'm talking about stories. I'm talking about all stories. And the more pious among you will say, well, wait a minute. What about the story of Jesus? Precisely. Precisely. That's why I made the claim. Because the story of Joseph is the story of a brother loved by his father, but hated by his brothers and rejected. It's a story of a hated brother who was cast into a pit of death, but who came out of that pit alive. It's the story of a brother whose plan of redemption was believed on by the Gentiles before it was believed on by the Jews. And so he saved the Gentiles, physical, not spiritual. He saved the Gentiles first, and then he saved his brothers. He was exalted to the right hand of a power on high. He was given a Gentile bride. Does it sound familiar? It was meant to, and that's why it's the greatest story in the world. The claim I will make is that the story of Joseph the story of a redeemer is the beginning of missions. It's the birth of missions. It's the birth of prison ministry. I will claim that in the history of missions, Genesis 40 is the birth and Acts 16 is the zenith. And I would like for us to track the ark from one testament to another. Uh, could a profound scholar make an argument that there's another birth? Of course. Could a profound scholar make an argument that there's a higher zenith than Acts 16? Of course. Could I be wrong? Of course not. Just kidding. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. Of course. But while I have the microphone, I'll make the case, okay? You know the story, so I'm not going to read all of it. In honor of God and his word, let's stand. Genesis chapter 40. I'm only going to read a little part of it. Joseph is already in prison. I'll begin in verse 5 of Genesis 40. I'll go to verse 8, and then we'll jump to verse 23. Hear the word of God. Then the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt, who were confined in jail, both had a dream the same night, each man with his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning and observed them, behold, they were dejected. He asked Pharaoh's officials who were with him in confinement in his master's house, why are your faces so sad today? Then they said to him, we have had a dream. And there was no one to interpret it. Then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell it to me, please. Joseph faithful. Now skip down to verse 23. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Joseph forgotten. Father, show us what it means. Show us what it matters. Show us the difference it should make. And Lord, then 
cause it to make a difference. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Please be seated. Prisoners are notoriously self-absorbed. And even when they're guilty, they usually claim that they're innocent, that it's not fair, that it's somebody else's fault. Not only is this a, not only is this a pattern for missions, for missionaries, this is a pattern for pastors. I would argue that in this passage, we have the clearest example of what pastors are supposed to do more so than any other place in the Old Testament. There's, as a matter of fact, I think there's only one passage in the Psalms that comes close. We'll get to that in a minute. But think of it. Think of why he's there. You know, one thing that's increasingly scarce in our age, and I won't go into details or reasons I believe this, is purity and chastity. Uh, it's our responsibility as, as believers while we're single to keep ourselves pure and to not become involved physically with the opposite sex before marriage, or any sex, any gender. Almost nobody is successful. Almost nobody. But think of the rewards. Think of the rewards if we are faithful. Think of the rewards if we're, if, we're, if we're, and I'm talking about in contemporary life. I'll start my own birth date. Maybe your birth date, although there are fewer and fewer of you, maybe your own birth date is a little earlier, and maybe lots of people were successful in your generation. But starting with my generation, which mirrored exactly in teen years the 60s, because I was born in 1950, almost nobody was faithful. What if you are faithful? Think of the rewards. Think of just realizing, well, I pleased God in this area. God protected me. Think of that greatest wedding gift. The greatest wedding gift you could possibly give to a spouse on your wedding night. To be able to say truthfully to your spouse, sweetheart, you are the first. You're the first. Think of the beauty of it. Think of the glory of it. Think how you thank God for it. So purity and chastity, they have their rewards. But wait a minute. Let me ask you a question. What if by being pure, you were punished for it? What if by being pure, and you know the thing about it is people who are chaste, they, they kind of let the word get out, you know that I waited, and that's great. If that helps you to wait, publicize it all you want. But what if by staying pure, you gained the public reputation of being a rapist? Then would you be willing to be pure? Then would you hold to God's highest standard if by holding to God's highest standard everybody thought you were a rapist? Would you still do the right thing? That's what happened to Joseph. Joseph was just 17. 
Joseph's hormones were screaming, go, 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 go. And this powerfully seductive woman who held his destiny in her hands was saying, come, 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 boy. And somehow Joseph heard the voice of God. And somehow he said no to his own flesh and no to that woman, that powerful woman. And said, I will not betray my master that way. I will not betray my God that way. And he did the right thing, and he was punished for it. What must, what must he have thought? So we catch him now in prison as part of his punishment. By the way, I think Potiphar knew the truth. It says he was upset. It doesn't say who he was upset at. I think he was upset at the situation. I think if he believed his wife that Joseph would have been summarily executed. I think Potiphar knew men. I think he knew what Joseph was, and I think he knew what his wife was. But we catch him in prison. Now, in that situation, in prison, Joseph did what a pastor does. What does a pastor do? He doesn't think about himself. He's not obsessed with himself, absorbed in himself. He's alert for other, to, to others. And he studies their countenance. That's what a pastor is supposed to do. He reads their countenance. And he said, what's wrong? Why are you so sad? In a way, it was a stupid question. Well, it could be that we used to have this swell job in the palace and Pharaoh honored us and now we're about to die. That's probably why we're a little bit upset today. But in fact, that really wasn't it. What, what was it was they had these dreams and they didn't know what the dreams meant. I can't dwell very long here though I would love to. So what does Joseph say? Look at what he says. Genesis 40, verse 8. Do not interpretations belong to God? Can't God tell you what his dream meant? Christian, let's, let's learn this right now. Let's settle this. Let's answer this question. Why did he believe that? Why did he believe that God could interpret dreams? God had given him the interpretation of a dream. And the interpretation was he would be exalted over his brothers and even his whole family. What was 100% of his experience to this point in his life? 100% of his experience. Not only did that not happen, the opposite of that happened. Where did he get that buoyant, joyful faith in God? That conviction that God can interpret dreams. Where did he get it? He didn't get it from the Bible. There wasn't a Bible. He didn't get it at church or synagogue. There wasn't a church. There wasn't a temple. There wasn't a synagogue. He didn't get it from the Christian fellowship all around him. He didn't have any fellowship. 
Where did he get it? Somewhere. Somehow. Some way. By some miracle. He had a deep trust in the character of God. A deep conviction of the loftiness and perfection of God's character against all the tragedy of his experience. What's the principle? Uh, God's character is not tied to my difficulty. If I have a wretched and a rotten time, that doesn't mean anything bad about God. We encounter suffering, unbelievable suffering. I meet unbelievers and they try to charge God with suffering. I never minimize the suffering. I said, let me tell you something, friend. The, 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 net, the gross volume of suffering on this planet is far greater than you've ever imagined. Let me tell you something else. The goodness of God, the perfection of God, the loftiness of God, the trustworthiness of God is far beyond my feeble powers to articulate. And both those realities exist in tension. And one triumphs over the other. One trumps the other in the convictions of the believer. And Joseph, somehow, 2,000 years before the cross, hundreds of years before the writing of Torah, was a believer. And he ministers. And he's faithful. And he's forgotten. His father gave him a coat that he didn't give to his brothers, his human father. His heavenly father gave him a dream, two dreams really, but the dreams were as one that he didn't give to his brothers. And it was enough, even though 100% of his experience was that the opposite of what the dream promised had come upon him. He still trusted. Here's the next principle. God isn't limited to the parameters of our biological lives to prove his trustworthiness. Are you only interested in God and what he offers within the borders of your biological life, the three score and ten, which I'm coming up upon fast, or if by reason of strength, four score? that all you're interested in? Let me tell you something, friend. You're going to be dead a long time. And once you're dead, the promises of God mean everything. They may not mean much to you now, but on the day you're, you die, the promises of God mean everything. And the promises of God will be kept. And against all his experience and suffering and being punished for doing the for doing the right thing, Joseph believed in the promises of God, and he ministered. He ministered as a pastor, and he ministered as a missionary because he was in a foreign land where nobody knew Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, the God of his fathers. Now we're going to jump to the New Testament. I won't ask you to stand. But I will ask you to understand. And here we find what I would call the zenith of missions. That was the birth of missions. 
This is the zenith of mission, the height of missions. Missions never gets any higher than this. I don't think it got any higher than this in the book of Acts. I don't think it got any higher than this in the ministry of the reformers. I don't think it got, got any higher than this in the ministry of William Carey or the Moravians or, or Adoniram Judson or Amy Carmichael or Jim Elliott. And I may be wrong, but I don't think it ever got any higher than this. I think this is the Everest of missions. And I think if we're going to understand missions, we have to understand what happens in that prison in Philippi in Macedonia. I will read part of the story. You follow along or listen. Acts 16, 19, what had happened is Paul had come upon a young woman who was being trafficked, not obviously sexually, I'm sure that was a part of it, but mainly spiritually. She had a spirit of divination. Uh, divination. She could make predictions, demonically inspired predictions, which came true. She was a spiritual freak and her masters pimped her because people paid money to listen to her like a fortune teller. Paul redeemed her. And when he redeemed her, her masters saw that their heart of profit was gone. Let me tell you something. You know what's almost as dangerous as communism? Capitalism. It's all about money anyway. And when her master saw their pro prophet was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them to the marketplace. We'll skip down. They ordered them to be beaten, verse 22, with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, think about that. When they struck them with many blows, they threw them into the prison. And not just the prison, but the inner prison. Not just the inner prison, but their feet was fastened in the stocks, Acts 16, 24. Now, I probably shouldn't share this. I had to get out the plunger this morning. <laughs> the only tool I know how to use. <laughs> they didn't have beautifully appointed bathrooms back then. As a matter of fact, they didn't have poorly appointed bathrooms. As a matter of fact, they didn't have bathrooms. We've just heard this testimony from all the 25 prisoners in the 12 by 12 cell in Nepal. Did you think about what that meant? You know, they didn't have vanilla-scented candles back then. They didn't have air fresheners back then. But you know what? It wouldn't have mattered. It wouldn't have mattered if they'd had a beautifully appointed bathroom because their feet were in the stocks so that after a little while their clothes which were already soaked with their blood would be soiled with human waste and that was part of the, the indignity they meant to visit upon them their feet were in the stocks and they're thinking about the fact, just as probably Joseph was thinking about those dreams that the Lord had given him and interpreted, they're probably thinking about, you know, we were, we were trying to go to Asia Minor, and we got this vision, and this vision bid us come to Europe. We're going to talk about that tonight. We're going to bore down deeper in Acts 16 tonight. We're going to ask the question, like, how do, what are we supposed to do next? How do we find out what God's will is? How do we know? We'll talk about that tonight, God willing. 
And you, you know, it, the, the call to come here was clear. It was supernatural. God sent a vision, a dream in the night. And here we are with our feet in the stocks. Now, what do you do in a situation like that, Christian? What do you do when, when you do exactly what you believe God told you to do? Scenario ensues. What do you do? They sang hymns. They worshiped. They worshiped God. Because the goodness of God was not calibrated to the difficulty of their personal experience. They didn't hold God to account because they had interpreted God's promises in a way that he didn't deliver it. That's what happened to John the Baptist in Matthew 11. He was in prison too, but he didn't count on that as the role of a forerunner. And he was staggered to a degree that he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, Matthew 11, well, are you really the one after all? He saw the Holy Spirit fall from heaven. He heard the voice of God sound from heaven. But you see, his personal tragedy was so deranging that he had to ask Jesus, whom he'd recognized when he was a preborn, are you really the one? That's how deranging our personal disappointment can be. We trust God and our lives fall apart. And we think, should I have really trusted him? Yes, you should have. Because your story's not over. So they're singing and they're worshiping the God who landed their feet in the stocks and they can't go to take care of their personal hygienic needs. That's where missions landed them. So they sing hymns. And so they worship. And the prisoners were transfixed. God sends an earthquake and the chains fall off. The stocks fall apart. Why don't the, why don't the prisoners run out? You know, that's a bigger miracle than the earthquake. You know what was a bigger miracle than the flood? I know you've been thinking about the flood the last week in Memphis. You know what was a bigger miracle than the flood? The fact that the animals came on board and stayed calm. That anesthetizing miracle was a greater miracle than the judgment of the water. But those prisoners had been watching, watching and those prisoners had been listening. And those prisoners knew, they knew that the earthquake came because of those two men who were singing praises to God. They knew. And if those guys didn't run out, they weren't going to run out. They were going to stick with these guys because they knew that these guys were worshiping the God of the earthquake, the God who could redeem, the God who could free the prisoners. Now, this is the last lesson because my time is gone. Here's the key to missions, okay? This is the key to missions. You cannot understand missions. A missionary can't understand his own vocation unless he or she understands this. Why didn't they run out? I mean, my goodness. If I'm in a prison with people who beat me and people who don't let me go to the bathroom and God sends a miracle to set me free, you don't think I'm going to run out and think of thin, 10 theological reasons why I did the right thing? They stay put. Why do they stay put? It's very simple. 
because they were already free. It was a jailer who was the prisoner. They didn't need redemption. They'd already been redeemed. He was the one who needed redemption. The message of the majority religion of the Mideast is we're willing to die for a chance to kill you. If we die in jihad, it doesn't make any difference because our reward is going to be great. It's the greatest fleshly thing a man can imagine. But this is a different message. This is the message we're willing to die so you can be saved. We're willing to die so you can live. We'll talk about this more tonight. This is the message of Christianity, which has been rejected in the West, which is why the West is being lost. What the West is saying in Europe and in North America to the adherents of that majority Medician religion is, you don't, have to, you don't have to kill our children. Don't bother. We'll do it. So the demographic of, of Europe is a little over one child per family. The demographic of the invading Mideastern religion is eight children per, fa per family. I went to Europe 32 years ago. 32 years from now, Europe will be Muslim. Every projection says that. Not a few right-wing kooks, not a few Christian missiologists. Uh, Economist Magazine, Time Magazine, The Washington Post, New York Times, everybody says that because it's demographically inevitable. Because the Muslims have babies and the Europeans kill babies. That's why the belief system matters. We're seeing an exchange and a change and a metamorphosis of civilization. The West is disappearing. The West got started here. And we'll talk about it tonight. Because they said, you don't have to kill yourself. We're not going anywhere. We're willing to stay. We're willing to die. Because your soul is precious. Your soul is precious. Because our Savior shed his blood for your soul. And if our Savior can shed his blood, we sure can shed our blood. Because our blood isn't as precious as his. That's the message of the gospel. That's the message of Christianity. That's the burden of missions. Joseph redeemed his brothers because he was a redeemer. Paul and Silas redeemed this jailer because they were redeemers. That's what missions is. That's what missionaries do. And that's what they did all along the ark. Amen.